What's up, everybody? It's Zach with Living Corporate. That's right. I'm back. It's probably Tuesday or maybe you listen to this latest like a Wednesday or a Thursday. I don't know. But of course, we're having real talk in the corporate world. We center and amplify underrepresented voices in the corporate space. And by corporate space, I just mean at work. OK, so this is not like an elitist thing. Right. So like if you work at Wendy's, hey, this is for you, too. OK, if you work at Goldman Sachs. Um, this is for you too. And you're probably a white man listening to this. And if so, Hey man, thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope that you're, uh, you learned something from this, but this is for everybody is my point. And, uh, we do this, we amplify and center underrepresented experiences by having underrepresented folks. These are like influencers, journalists, activists, um, educators, public servants, entrepreneurs, executives, recruiters, um, and anybody really who is able to really come on and just have some real talk with us. And uh, we've had some amazing guests every single week. I mean, every single week we have some fire. I mean, fire, fire, fire guests. And this week is no different. OK, because, you know, who? I don't even know if y'all know who we have, but I'm about to tell y'all we have Ruchika Tulshan. Ruchika is a diversity and inclusion strategist, award winning author and journalist. She's the author of The Diversity Advantage, Fixing Gender Inequality in the Workplace, a book on strategies for organizations to advance women. Ruchika's company, Candor, advises a number of organizations on diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy. Ruchika is also the 2019 inaugural Distinguished Professional in Residence for Seattle University's Communication Department. Ruchika, how are you doing? I am doing very well, Zach. I'm so excited to be here. I love it. I love it. I really do. We got to get into it. We got to get into it. You're an author, a journalist, an international speaker, and a CEO of your own consulting firm. Like, what is it about this space, about this diversity, equity, and inclusion space that has had you commit so much of your life to it? You know, it wasn't planned at all, Zach. And I grew up outside the United States. I'm from Singapore originally. So I think about food all the time. In fact, right now, while I'm talking, I'm thinking about what's my next meal. No, but... no, what's, no what's your favorite food? Um, so I'm, you know, being from Singapore, we, we eat everything, but probably anything Asian, anything with noodles or rice, mm. I, I can eat rice for breakfast, lunch, dinner, supper, snack, mm. midnight snack. <laughs> you get the drift. Yes. Yes. No, I do. Now. So now do you like Pad Thai? Uh, not, I, I'll never order it in the United States because I've had it in Thailand. Oh quite my gosh, a what is it like in Thailand? It's so different. It's not sweet. Mm-mm. It's. It's just, it's got this beautiful, it's like umami, you know, like you just, there's a different flavor altogether. So yeah, I haven't, you know, I tried it once or twice in the U.S. and then I'm in different cities and I was like, yeah, this is not going to be the thing for me. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I remember, so I went to Japan. I was in, I was in Japan for a couple of weeks last year and well in 2018. And I remember just eating the food there. It's like, it's crazy that like, most Americans don't have all their toes cut off from diabetes. How much sugar we have in our food. Mm-mm. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. And that's, I mean, I could talk about this all day because <laughs> I, I, you know, I think about this all the time. Um, and again, I think, I think it's all related. Right. And I think even talking about diversity and inclusion, like really understanding people, finding a common language based on food, I think is something that's really special and a very, right. very important way to connect with people. You know, I, I 100% agree. And just one last thing about the food, because you talked about like when you have something in the States and you for me, because I'm from from here, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and like all my people, as far as I can go back, are from here, right? So, but I, when I went to Japan, I had sushi in Japan. I said, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Isn't it completely what? different? I said, I just, I just was. I mean, I, I had like a spiritual moment. It was just like. I said, yeah. my gosh, my taste yeah. buds. Isn't it? And all their food, everything. I mean, if you've had chocolate in, in Japan, if you've had like cookies in Japan, if you've had a cake in Japan, what? it's like nothing you've ever tasted before. And you know? Yes. And I'm just, and it's, and how conditioned I've been eating here. It's like, I'm used to like, if I eat something like a big meal, I'm uh-huh. used to being a little, a little like a little sleepy afterwards. Oh yeah. Right. I mean, all this, I'm like, I was like, wait, why, why can I still walk? I can still walk around and like think cognitively after eating this meal. It's so strange. Um, okay. So I'm sorry, long segue aside about food, but just important though, it's connection to culture. I'm right there with you. Um, so we're talking about diversity and, <laughs> right. <Yes. laughs> and how did I get into it? Well, right. you know, it's connected, you know, it is connected. So I think, uh, I think I was kind of built for this in some way, although it wasn't planned. So growing up in Singapore, I just grew up with people of all different nationalities, all different cultures, all different religions. And it was very much a a way of my life. And I moved around quite a quite a bit when I was younger. But what it really exposed me to is the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, we're all the same. You know, in many ways, we want the same things. We really, really just want to be happy. We want to be heard. We want to feel valued and respected. And so I really grew up with that concept, you know, as, as a part of my life, just the way it was. You know, my friends were from all over the world. My teachers from, were from all over the world. And I really grew up with sort of an idealistic, almost kumbaya sort of uh, belief in the world. And when I moved to the United States about eight years ago, that was a very big shock for me, you know, and I really saw... Um, what I still think in some way is modern day segregation. You know, I really Mm -hmm. saw it in full force. Um, There's a stat that three out of four white Americans don't have a single friend of color. And I think that's really concerning because I grew up in a very different sort of environment and it really made me see the, the the it's it's awesome i mean talking just talking about food you know being exposed to different cultures different types of food i feel so lucky and i actually think people are missing out and so for a, a vast majority of americans the the most diversity they ever experience is actually in the workplace right. um so you know that I'm, I'm sort of setting myself up to saying that you know that was you know that was the early part of my life where I really felt you know I, I just had a connection but I never thought that I would work in this field I didn't even know this field existed and what changed for me is I began my career as a journalist I was really happy about it loved it then moved to Seattle um, and had and 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 sort of transitioned into tech because that's what everyone does here and it was the most challenging experience of my life you know I really encountered sexism and racism that I just wasn't you know just didn't didn't think that it could happen to me you know I really grew up with the mindset that you work hard you work smart you put your head down you do your thing and sure you you know you raise your hands and you're for opportunities you're confident etc but I really didn't think that it would make a difference you know my gender my race sort of the way I spoke my accent my name um, I didn't think these things mattered, right? I know, so naive of me now that I reflect back on it. And it was a very rude, painful, emotional awakening. 
and and really kind of created that empathy in me where I, I you know, I said to myself, I said, this cannot be the way that more than half the population is is being treated in the workplace, right? And these are their experiences. And as a journalist, I started collecting experiences. I started collecting stories and case studies and even and even data, right, and, and research. And it was very clear that um, something had to change. And so I wrote my book um, five years ago at a time where, you know, people said, like, the the way that women can can, you know, advance in the workplace is they need to lean in. Right. That was sort of the narrative of the day right. that it was something lacking in women. There was something lacking in people of color and they had to change. Right. And now I'm really glad that we're thinking about this as a systems change that actually doesn't, you know, if, if you are have been stereotyped against, if you have had, you know, if, if people have this preconceived narrative about who you are and what your potential is in the workplace, it doesn't matter how much you lean in, right. you know. It, that, you know, I mean, like, like my friend Minda Hart says, uh, see, you know, CEO of the Memo, and and has an awesome book out on it, yes. on on the experience of women of color at work. Zach, I know you know her. Um, it doesn't matter how hard you lean in if you're a woman of color. You are just not going to be able to get ahead until those systemic biases have been addressed. And so that's what got me into this work and it's a long-winded answer it's not long-winded this is a podcast (laughs) (laughs) Um, yes indeed so so you know but no you're absolutely i'm right there with you right and it's interesting when you talk about like systemic versus like individual actions and it's so i'll say for me it's been frustrating like just transparently like being being a black man in majority mm-hmm. white spaces and I'm in like I'm in professional services right so consulting mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. a lot of times when there's is- issues that come up when you're dealing with folks or people want to frame you as being angry or frustrated or whatever the case is like whatever trope you want to kind of pull out right and then you share those frustrations with like with other people who are not in who are not underrepresented who are ma- who are a member of the majority their feedback or coaching is often like things that you need to do and change but it's like yeah, that's not really the problem. Like, and not to be arrogant, we can all change. We can all, we all have spaces where we can grow and, and mature and, um, and, and emotional intelligence and, and, um, social intelligence and personal awareness. All those things are very important. Um, at the same time, like have the moral courage to actually talk about the systems at play and how there are a lot of things that really aren't our fault. Like there are things that are being done to us or that we are, you know, it's just the, it's a symptomatic of larger systemic challenges. And it's, it's tough though. Um, it's tough to have those conversations. And even for, especially for folks in the majority, some of them literally just don't know how some of them is just so uncomfortable. They don't, you know, how, how much of that is real, how much of that is like you imagining it. Right. But it's, but to me, I'm just noticing more and more, like I'm getting increasingly discouraged when you have these conversations, you know, and it's like, yo, can we just have a conversation about like, why is it that so this person constantly calls this person or these types of people too opinionated or loud or aggressive or angry or whatever the case is, right? Like you kind of see it over time. Um, that and it's funny that you you bring that up about Minda Hart. Shout out to Minda Hart. What's up, Minda? Woo! Woo! Um, in fact, hold on. Let me just you know I'm gonna get some air horns for you and Minda. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what you're speaking to about leaning in, right, and how the the concept of leaning in, it was promoted by a white woman. Um, with and and I recall there being major articles written 
and like championed about the fact that women of color can't lead exactly what you just said. And so I'm curious when you talk about your focus on gender equity, um, what does that look like and how are you introducing intersectionality within the concept of gender equity? Like how does that practically show up for you in the work that you do? So Zach, let me tell you one of the biggest career mistakes I ever made in my life. And that was to write a book that overall lacks intersectionality. And my students will tell you this because I make the poor things read my book for one of my classes. <laughs> um, and and so, you know, every, every class we have this discussion about, um, you know, about the fact that my book lacks intersectionality as well as that it really treats gender as a binary, right? Which, which is fully my fault and also a big part of the larger system of publishing and editing, et cetera, where that, you know, where this concept of intersectionality is still lacking, right? And I don't know to the, even right now, I don't know if management theory has really, really caught up to the fact that you really need to have a very intersectional approach when you think about gender equality, right? Like it is not just about the, the challenges that white women face it is really about, if you really want to make change, it is about looking at the intersection between how women of color, both those intersections, experience the workplace, and then especially from there, expanding that to include other marginalized identities in the workplace. So I will be the first to admit that my book lacks intersectionality, and and my hope is in, in all the work I've done since and will continue to do, I absolutely cannot you know, I absolutely cannot take an intersectional approach. Um, that being said, I really, I, I really think again the key to making a difference when it comes to workplace gender equity is having a situation where the voice of the person who is the most marginalized in the room is centered, so that the workplace works for all. Right. So if the if the workplace was built by you know, say a cis hetero white man. Um, and and that's you know that's who the workplace is built for. If you do not consider the experience of what a you know woman of color, a black woman, for example, a trans black of black woman of color, yes. what what what's the experience you know and and who who may have you know disabilities, cognitive, temporary, physical, whichever, or a combination. If you do not if you do not start there then you're going to continue perpetuating systems which alienate, you know, you know, women and especially women of color across the board. You know what I mean? So you really, you really need to start with the person who is the most vulnerable, who is having really the most challenging experiences in the workplace and then, and then, and then expand from there and think about what is it that they need to be successful. Right. And how can that, be incorporated into the fabric of what you do. And that's why part of what I love to do, I love I love speaking with large corporations. We just talked about someone who works at a large corporation who we both know. But really for me, the um, you know, I also really love working with smaller teams and startups because when you can build intersectionality, when you can build inclusion and equity into the very fabric of your organization, right? When you're when you're building it from like one to five to ten to twenty employees, that is where you can really make a change. And I have seen that happen personally. You know what? So first of all, you know what I'm saying? Like while you were talking, I didn't want to cut you off, but in my mind, when you said, when you like owned up and you said my book, you know, does not address intersectionality, I was like, because I was like, wow, that's incredible. Because everybody, I want everybody to stop, stop what you're doing. 
you're driving your car, you're doing whatever you're doing, especially you, <laughs> diversity, equity, inclusion, supposed subject matter experts. Stop and listen. See what see what Ruchika just did. Okay, I asked her a question, a direct question about a very important concept. If you want to consider yourself a diversity, equity, and inclusion expert, you see what she didn't do. She didn't get all defensive and fragile. She outright owned something that she didn't do, and her commitment to improve in the future. Some of y'all need to learn from that. I'm talking to you. Yes. If you think I'm talking to you, <laughs> I'm talking to you. Okay. Shout out to you. That was dope. Thank you. Absolutely welcome. <laughs> Thank you. And and listen, I'm not, you know, I don't at all claim to be perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And I, I do want to, I do want to double down on this point. Like I, I've said it before and I'm going to say it again. I think growing up both outside this country um, as well as sort of, in some way out of, you know, sort of the Western way of living um, has meant that I have had to approach DEI in the United States with a tremendous amount of humility and a learning mindset, right? I mean, where in, in the country I grew up in, gay marriage is not legalized, right? I didn't have any friends growing up who were out. The first time I actually came in contact with someone who was openly gay, for example, would would have been sometime in my 20s, you know, openly, right? Right, 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 right. What, what I'm trying to say is that you you can have been brought up a certain way. You're, the, the people you love may believe that, for example, you know, having friends of different colors or treating people from different backgrounds equally, maybe you grew up thinking that's not the way life should be. But my point is you can grow. My point is you can learn. And my point is that it takes a tremendous amount of humility and learning to get to that place. And you absolutely can get there. Amen. No, I I, I agree. I agree. And I think we're coming into an era where people are just getting like less and less tolerant of like corporatized nonsense. Right. So like Mm. there's going to need to be eventually some sort of reckoning with like the systems at play. In fact, we're in a unique position because it's an election year where we almost kind of have like a countdown. <laughs> we know one way or the other, there's going to be an explode. Like there's going to be another explosion and there's going to be more and more people supposedly very surprised all over again. Um, but I think, I also think that like just societally and generationally, like we also have folks and uh, younger folks who weren't able to vote, who saw the nonsense last time, but weren't in the same position who are in a different position this time. So I just think that the, I think the dialogue, I think it's going to still be just as present, if not more present than it was in 2016. And so that the, 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 the imperative to really like, like to your point about humility and being willing to learn centering the most vulnerable um, and, and, and continuing to seek to grow and develop yourself in this space is important because I don't, I just don't think that some of some, some of the trends that I saw in this like environment, the last decade, I don't think it's going to be sustainable this upcoming decade. It isn't. And, you know, Zach, while you were talking, I was thinking of this idea, you know, coming to this country as an immigrant, um, my experience was definitely uh, steeped in and, and very much the way that I was told that I would be successful in this in this country was to uphold white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 I, and I have to acknowledge that for, for us to really make a change, we need to address anti-blackness in a lot of immigrant communities, including the ones I'm part of, South Asians primarily. And I think it's very important to, to really drill down into that a little bit more, you know? And if we do want to see a change, 
um, even in the workplace, you know, I, I, I work with tech companies and there's a lot of like, oh, we don't, you know, we don't have a problem with people of color, you know, like there are a lot of Asians doing really well in our, in our tech company. I've had, I've had readers write to me. I used to write a column for, uh, for a supplement of the Seattle Times and people would, you know, I'd have people all the time from large tech companies being like, oh, you know, but our CEO is a person of color. Oh, but our, you know, whatever it is, uh, it, you know, our, our top people are, are people of color. And I really had to stop and say, listen, it's not about people who are already represented in the workforce. If you really want to make a change, can you tell me how many black people are leading at this company? Can you tell me how many Ooh, black people? goodness gracious, Richika. What you're you talking about? Me, you know, how many indigenous women, for example, are, right. are your company? Then let's talk about equity. Because well, we're, we're not we're not a monolith. And you're absolutely right. Right. There's this idea like and we're using and there's terms that we use. And, you know, this is the thing. Living corporate is a positive space. You know, we you know, if we kind of if we make any like direct statement, we have real talk. But like we're not you know, we're not we're not trying to be overly mad right. all the time. Right. right. <laughs> as, as hard as it is. <laughs> but like one thing that grinds my gears is like people using the term people of color when we're really talking about specific underrepresented groups. Like let's actually yeah. name and imp- like let's yeah. give let's give those groups the respect. Like because if you say black people, that's already a very complex group. Mm-hmm. So, so like let's at least just say if we're talking about black people, let's just say black people. If we're talking mm-hmm. about South Asians, let's talk. Let's say South Asians. But mm-hmm. like when mm-hmm. we say people of color, it's like it's like almost like you know I don't know if you have it, but. Every black person who's listening to this podcast know what I'm talking about. You know, and and um, and I don't know if you have you have a junk drawer in your house. It's like a junk drawer. It has like nails oh, yeah. and like batteries uh-huh. and everything in there, right? Ketchup mm-hmm. packets, and it's kind of and that's what that's really what people of color. It's just a junk drawer term. We're just gonna throw. If you're not eggshell white, you're a person of color, right? And it's like how do we like how do we break out of that? And so let me ask you this then: when you ask those follow up questions and you start asking to be specific. Um, you know, you ask like, well, how many of this particular group do you have? Then what is the conversation? What does that, what does that shift look like in conversation? Most people are tremendously uncomfortable and don't want to engage. Right. And that's also, you know, and then, and then we can, we can, I'm happy to get off this topic because then I can talk all day, but then part of it is the terminology and the language is flawed in the same way people of color is flawed. So is Asians. Yes. So Indians and Indian Americans, you know, capture some of the highest income groups in this country, but in the same category of South Asians, just if you look at the South Asian subcontinent, continent Bangladeshi immigrants have some of the have the low have the lowest rates of poverty some of the lowest rates of poverty in this country so what I'm saying is already the terminology that we use to describe um, you know race is is extremely flawed and by the way I want to shout out to a book that I'm reading that I love already it's called Superior by Angela Saini she's a British science journalist I'm actually uh, part of the team bringing her out to Seattle to speak at our university here. And I, I just love this book because it really dives into how race science came about and the very flawed logic that is being used to show that there are differences biologically between the races, which, by the way, she argues very, very well using tons and tons of data and research to show that that's absolutely not true, while race is a social categorization and we absolutely must acknowledge the experience of different people socially because of what has you know because of these categorizations biologically there really aren't that many differences right 
and and so and and so I think I think my point is you know I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but people don't want to engage because we are so comfortable with this idea. Oh no, people, you know, like no, no, no. Firstly, let's not talk about race. That's that's a very interesting thing that I really noticed here in the United States. In fact, yeah. I, I did my I did some of my uh, tertiary education in the United Kingdom, and then I, as I mentioned, grew up in Singapore and moved around quite a bit. What I found is really in the United States, people don't want to talk about race, and as a result of not talking about race, they uphold racism. You know, when it, it's just it's just it's baffling to me. It really is, and and I think if you can't address it, and and you know, I've now moved to Seattle, which is really which is another you know another shout out my my friend Igio Maulo's book. So you want to talk about race? Excellent book. Highly recommend to every single yes, person. Yes, I love it's it's yes yes amazing. I make yes. my class read it every year, and they're so grateful. It After my boring book, they go to they go to her book, and they're so grateful. Yes, <laughs> it is fire. Yes. <laughs> You should see the evaluation papers. They're like, you know, my book boring. You know, it's my book amazing. Um, but my point is, without us really um, naming and owning some of the huge systemic barriers we've had in the workplace, I think we're just going to let status quo run. And right. I and I and I think and I think you have to be brave enough to get super uncomfortable and address those challenges. You know, and it's it's interesting that you say that, right? Um, and I, of course, I agree. It, it, it leads me into um, the next question I have, which is, um, you know, recently Goldman Sachs they announced that they won't be taking companies public without at least one diverse board member, and then they went on to emphasize gender diversity. Um, my first question is, do you think that this is substantive? And then two, or part B to that, do you believe? black and brown men are largely excluded from DEI initiatives? And if so, why? Okay. So firstly, do I think that it's substantive? I, I don't think so. I'm not at all. You know, I think, I think, I think actually the word diverse, like I think, I think diverse board member already is, is just problematic. And here's another shout out, you know, Aubrey Blanche talks about how you really, you know, you cannot, the word diverse person is actually problematic like there's no such thing as a diverse person right, right. it can mean anything to me a white person is diverse right you know, well, they, that's why they use diversity of thought right <laughs> so diverse itself it's you know you re- like like name what you're back to language like name what you mean and what you're what you mean here is underrepresented right like that's mm-hmm. what that's what goldman sachs meant by one diverse board mentor member what they meant is underrepresented or underestimated Arlen Hamilton, but underestimated board members, what they were talking about, right? So already that framing is problematic. And I think if you emphasize gender diversity, I really think you're missing the boat, right? I do we are are female founders underrepresented and underestimated? Absolutely, right? But here's real talk. In the Fortune 500, 19% of the C-suite is made up of white women. Only four percent is made up of women of color, right. Right? right? So if you if you're really talking about systemic change, if you're talking about not trying to go through the same systems that or or recreate the same systems that are already in place, then you really have to look at race. Without that, without that intersectionality, without actually naming that, not only do we mean one board member from an underrepresented background in terms of gender, but also race. You're just really perpetuating the problem, right? So I think I, I think that I, I just think they didn't go far enough. I like the idea, 
Um, I like I like what they're trying to say. And we also know that in many, many cases, white women do perpetuate similar systems of patriarchy, right? And if you talk to any woman of color in the world, she has a story for you about now, this. Now, so it's, it's so interesting that you say that, right? Because I... I really want to to talk about um, the role that white women play in upholding, not only upholding white supremacy, but also ironically or unironically patriarchy as well. Right. And so it's like what, but I, what I'd, I'd still want to do more. I think there's more research and work to be done and, or I'd love to just bring on more folks to really deep dive into that subject because I think it's worth discussing. I think that it's I'm as a, as a black straight man, um, I benefit from patriarchy and I have my own uh, privileges. Um, I do believe that white women sit in a very unique position in America or just in the world in general, in that they are an oppressed group, but also heavily benefit from white supremacy. Um, and so it's just curious, like I, and you're absolutely right. Like I've talked to plenty of women, uh, black and brown women who have, who have their own experiences and frustrations. And I've seen them as well. I've seen, I've seen oppression in action at work. Um, but, but I, but I do find it to be an under discussed topic. I know that there's articles and things out there. I still just think there's much more to like, I think there are much, many more conversations we could have around it. I'm curious as to what's going to need to happen for us to like, just more unabashedly address the topic head on though. Absolutely. And, and I think it's again, that being comfortable with getting really uncomfortable because I think so much of, again, uh, you know, sort of the leftover of, uh, workplaces that were designed for and have been sort of continued on by white men. I think it's very much like you don't talk politics at work. You don't talk, you don't bring your, you know, your, your sort of real authentic self to work. And, and we know that that's changing with the next generation. Um, I did want to answer your question about black and brown men largely being excluded from DEI initiatives. I do think so. I do think they, I think, I think black and brown men are, I think they do face some very specific and very, very difficult challenges. From a, from a research standpoint, they, you know, and, the, you know, we know research can always be thought, but right. um, McKinsey's Women in the Workplace uh, study, their report, I in fact have it in front of me, shows that at, at entry level, men of color represent 16% of entry level jobs in, in corporations. And uh, when it comes to the C-suite, that's, that's down to 9%. Yeah. Where women of color at seventeen percent at entry level and four percent in the C suite. Yeah. So we so we know we know that you know that while you know by there's a there's a huge underrepresentation of men of color, the percentage of underrepresentation of women of color relative to how many actually enter the workforce right. is really stark, right? Like yeah, really yeah. a quarter versus close to half. So my point here is, I think when it, when you look at the data, you know, I can I can see why perhaps the experiences of men of color are sometimes left out and excluded from DEI initiatives. Um, I do think it's a very very important part of if you again if you really want to make substantial change, you do have to include them. The only other way, again, academically, I've looked at this is what I found is that when you when you address the two historically most underestimated identities in the workplace, right, or under, or historically lower status um, identities, and that's gender and race, so women of color. Yeah, that's that's where you can really make a big difference because if you look at 
if you look at white women, they benefit from, you know, one high status identity as being white, but one low status. And for men, it's for men of color, it's, you know, being patriarchy, you benefit from it. So I think there's this, I think it's a very delicate dance, but do I think we should build corporate diversity initiatives without including the experience of men of color? Absolutely not. I think, again, you will, again, you will miss out. And again, you're going to leave things out that really are crucial to making sustainable change. So you speak about change. You talk about like the future. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's curious because like, as millennials, as we entered the workforce, you know, there was this collective anticipation um, from thought leaders around. OK, yo, watch out because millennials about to shake it up. We about to mm-hmm. ca- cause a ruckus. You know, it's about to be crazy over here. And, and, and there was a lot of that that talk. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how have you seen um, that in the work that you do practically? Um, and the the infusion of of the millennial generation, and then what if any shifts do you anticipate as Generation Z um, comes into the workforce in the next decade? You know, I I don't, I don't really a hundred percent know how to answer this honestly. Um, I mean, I I teach students who are at that sort of cusp of millennial Gen Z, and it's and it's really amazing to see. You know, they're they're very very different, at least in the sense of being at least aware of some of the huge problems we see in the world today. I mean, they're the people most impacted by climate change, for example. And I do see that there is a very early understanding of social justice and why this is important. And that really gives me a lot of hope, right? You know, when I taught five years ago, my students weren't that socially justice-minded in the way that they are right now. So already in five years, I'm starting to see a huge change. At the same time, I think, again, they're inheriting systems that were built with patriarchy and white supremacy at the core of them. So what's what's interesting and exciting to see is many reject that and they're starting their own businesses, they're doing their own things, they're they're in their own side hustles and their and their side gigs and that's really interesting and and that's a very important part of I think the change of the future of work. Um, at the same time, I think without addressing those systems of oppression, you are still going to find many millennials who will continue to co-opt into them. For many reasons, right? I mean, this is a generation that is the most financially insecure in in close to a century, right? And and they are and and they're really really struggling with a lot of the mistakes that the generations before them made. Mm-hmm. And so and so, I think that there's no perfect answer for this. I think what I will say is that it's exciting to see at least the data showing that millennials and generation and Gen Z really care deeply about you know working in a place that where they can live out their values and they would actually there a significant portion of them would actually rather take lower pay than work for a place where their values don't align and that's really exciting that is a very different way of looking in the workplace and again maybe sometimes i mean i'm a millennial maybe i wouldn't be doing the work i'm doing if i was not a millennial right like maybe i would have had that terrible experience in tech and i would have been like well you know, this is just, just the way that it is, and life's like that, and right. you know, we need to continue. And there was, and there's, and I just want to admit that there's there's tremendous privilege, and for me being able to do that. I mean, I talk to immigrant women whose you know ability to live in this country is tied to working for a job, no matter how toxic it is, right? I talk to many, 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 many people who have had to continue working in workplaces that were terrible for their mental health, terrible for their health in general. 
and they just had to, right? Because for for a variety of financial reasons, right. health insurance, etc. Right. So, uh, so, so I do want to acknowledge that. So, so let's do this. Let's talk a little bit about you, right? You have so much going on, and so I just want to make sure that we really give you space um, for you to share what you're excited about this year and just what you're focused on. Thank you. So um, I do, I indeed, I do a lot. Um, I don't like to talk about myself, but I, <laughs> I will say my, my goal for this year is to do a lot more speaking based on some of the topics that I care about. And, um, you know, it's, it's really inspirational when I'm able to address a room of people. And I've, and I've had people come up to me and say, thank you so much. This is the first time our leaders heard about, you know, unconscious bias and the experience of women of color, or this is the first time we've actually had language around what diversity, equity, and inclusion means. And thank you for saying the things that you said. So I think I think part of my my goal for this year is just to continue being a very vocal advocate for women of color, for people of color in the workplace, keeping an intersectional lens when it comes to you know diversity efforts. Um, so that's something I definitely want to do. Um, I do write for Harvard Business Review, and my hope is to do a lot more work for them as the year uh, comes along. Um, I would like to share one article with you, uh, Zach. Yes. Well, actually, actually, there are two. So one that I'm really, really proud of is I wrote very recently about why it's really important to pronounce people's name correctly. I know I have a challenging name and an unfamiliar name in this country, and it really makes all the difference if you think about inclusion and as time goes on, this will this absolutely includes people's pronouns and other yes. sort of very subtle ways of making sure that you include people. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to make an effort to get their name right. Yes. And so and so it sounds so simple and it makes all the difference because my name nine out of ten times is mispronounced. And even when I pronounce it correctly for people, they don't want to listen. And and I think that is something that really needs to change. So, so there's that. The other is I really hope to continue writing about and speaking about topics that like generally we don't easily talk about. And for me, one of that, one of those is talking about office housework. So a couple of years mm. ago, I wrote an article about how women of color are asked to do more office housework, right? And this means all the non-glamorous work. It can be actual, you know, actual correlation to housework, like, you know, ordering lunch, doing the dishes, whatever it is, or tidying up after meetings. But it also also relates to the non-glamorous work at, you know, at work, like taking meeting notes or sitting on committees that don't lead to promotion or, um, you know, or mentoring the interns, for example, like it's not going to impact your performance review. And so I really want to continue shedding light on these topics that people generally don't talk about, but they do actually make a huge difference when it comes to diversity, equity and inclusion. Man, shout out to you, Ruchika. This is this Thank is, you. This has been super dope. I'm so excited. Um, I love your work. I love your writing. We're gonna make sure we have all of your information in the show notes, um, including the the books that you referenced. Um, and then, like, let's just make sure you know you're a friend of the show. Like, you're welcome back at any time. So, you have anything you want to plug or you want to promote, you come here. We got you. Okay, we'll put in. The, we'll put, I'm serious. We got you. Um, <laughs> Let's see here. Um, before we let you go, any parting words you have for us, for the um, for the folks listening in, um, for the so you know we call. So do you watch? Um, did you watch uh, the Avengers? 
You know, I did not. <laughs> okay. All right. So listen, in my defense, in my defense, I have a three-year-old and life is very full. <laughs> no, super respect. I definitely get it. My wife and I are welcoming our, our first. Our oh, wow. So, Congratulations. Yeah. 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 No, thank you very much. I, I was, I was going to make a reference. So like, you know, on Living Corporate, we call um, aspiring allies mm-hmm. uh, Bucky's because, in, mm-hmm. okay. because, because, because in the Avengers movie, uh, Ruchika, Captain America had a friend and his name was Bucky Barnes, but see Bucky Barnes got hurt and um, he had to get, he had to get some medical help, but his, his medical, his medical problems were so complex. They had to actually send him to Wakanda, which is this fictionalized African oh, nation. Yeah. I know Wakanda. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, <laughs> and so, and so then he goes to Wakanda and they end up calling Bucky the white wolf. You see what I'm saying? Because yep. he's like a friend of the Wakandan. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a long way of saying, um, we have a lot of Bucky's listening in, aspiring allies, and um, just curious if you had any words for them, for the for the Wakandans listening in, and for everybody in between. Oh wow! Okay, that is such a big sort of closing. <laughs> so I'll, listen, I'll start first with the Bucky's. I think here's the deal. Um, you know, I think it's always it's it's easy to like talk and believe that your frame of reference and your narrative is the most important or the most significant and i think what we need to really start doing is to step back and listen like literally listen and and open up your networks and open up sort of your privilege and open up your world for people who haven't had that experience right and what i mean is like for example i'm a small business owner buy from me don't 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 come to me and say oh you're doing great things so proud of you buy from me refer me you know um yeah literally like that it's it's literally that i mean you know and and if if someone's doing great work at the at your company and you know and and you're a white man with a lot of influence recommend the woman of color hey you know who should run this meeting this person who never gets to do that. You know what I mean? So, so for me, it's about moving away from being a passive ally into an active accomplice. And I've, and I've heard this framing from a few different people. And so it's really about being very active. So that's my, my thought about, you know, my thoughts about Bucky's, for example. Um, When it comes to, you know, when it comes to people of color, when it comes to people who have been underestimated, I had an experience last week where I was underestimated. It was really hard. It really, really hurts. I think in those moments, you really need to find your people. Like, you need to find the people. And they can be Buckies or they can be fellow Wakandans. But you need to find your people that you can really come clean with, that you can sit down and be like, hey, this horrible thing happened to me. Tell me I'm not crazy. Because for a long time, and especially everything that actually led me to this moment, has been me pretending like, no, everything's great. I'm fine. Yeah, some, some moments are tough, but otherwise I'm doing great. I'm working super hard. And I think we forget, like, we need those mental health checks. We need people who we can rely on, who can validate some of the really, really hard stuff you have to navigate when you are underestimated at work. Does that that work? Does that help? Does that work? (laughs) Let me tell you something. You dropping mad bombs. 
incredible. Man, no, absolutely it works. Thank you so much, Ruchik. Now, look, you talked about the importance of pronouncing someone's name. And let me just say, as an example, it is very important, y'all, in my country self. And I know some of y'all may think I come from Connecticut. But no, I'm actually from Georgia. Like, I'm I'm very country. And I so, love Georgia. I lived so there much. for a while. I appreciate that. And yes, Georgia is a dope place. I'm from Rome, Georgia. Shout out Rome, Georgia. And then shout out Mississippi, because that's where I'm from by way of, because that's where all my people are from. But look. You want to take the time, y'all, and really slow down and make sure you can ask. Like, people will always respect and appreciate you trying to ask and seek, as opposed to being like, what's your name? I'm going to just call you Bob. Like, no, don't call me Bob. That's not my name, right? Like, my parents gave me this name. This name carries weight and meaning and history and culture, and it's part of who I am as a human being that exists on this plane of existence with you. So, please take the time to understand how to pronounce my name. So, with that said, Ruchika Tulshin. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you very you. much. No, you're a beast. This has been great. Very thankful to have you on the Living Corporate Podcast. That does it for us, y'all. You know where to check us out. We're on Twitter at Living Corporate underscore pod. Uh, Instagram at Living Corporate. Uh, we're on all the different DSPs. So we got Spotify, Apple. I don't think we're on Tidal, maybe. I don't know. Holler at me. Ho, it's your boy. I don't know. But we're on all the <laughs> other DSPs. Okay, so we're on. So if you type in, if you Google Living Corporate, we will pop up. Okay. Um, and then, you know, if you want to make sure if you're a browser person, you're not really trying to take any risk, you know, type in www.livingcorporate.co, livingcorporate.tv, livingcorporate.us, livingcorporate.org, livingcorporate.net, living-corporate, please say the dash.com, but we don't have livingcorporate.com, okay? Australia has livingcorporate.com. The day that we're able to rest livingcorporate.com from Australia is the day that we have arrived, Okay. Wow. So you went out there and you got all those domains. We got all the domains. <laughs> wow. That is really, look, that, that takes a lot of work. So you know, now, I mean, I, I mean, obviously I, you know, I'm, I'm like to- totally in awe, but this is like double the y'all. Like that means you're really serious. Oh, about- no, we're, not, we're not playing. So if you type in anything, but live, if you type in living corporate dot anything else, we wow. will we will come up. It's just that livingcorporate.com. So Australia, it's like this. It's like this like um, corporate housing website thing. It's really strange. So I'm over, and I've been, you know, I, I've been like, I've been doing my work. I've been doing my Google's, my research, trying to figure out how can I get this domain. But you know, Australia is a big place. Living corporate, we only, you know, we're just one little company. But we're gonna get it though one day. Anyway, y'all, the <laughs> point is, we're all over. If you want to send us a, a listener letter, look, DMs wide open. We are not elitist. You don't have to follow us. Um, and we don't have to follow you for you to DM it. We just 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 hit us up, baby. We, we'll respond. But you should follow Living Corporate. Yo, you heard it. Yes, you heard it. You you heard it. Your podcasts are so incredible. And really, if if you care about you know making real change, and you want to hear from people who are out there who are really making change, I mean, between between all of you and your guests, I mean, I learn something every single episode. You hear that? Did you hear what Ruchi Katushin said? <laughs> Thank you. Come on now. Goodness gracious, the love is real. All right, Thank y'all. This is you know, I, and I and I I feel it. So thank you, um, y'all. This has been Zach. You've been talking to Ruchika Tushin, uh, speaker, innovator, educator, um, all the things, all the things. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Give her all the things. Recognize. Don't play. Okay, and make sure Harvard Business Review. I, if y'all listen to this, look, help you know. You, you know, don't play. She's dropping that heat. Hey, this is a very important part of this whole thing, okay? It's really important 
to spread the love and to what I say, you know, I mean, it's this, you know, this is not a case of like sending the elevator back down, which is super important, especially like I, I say this a lot when I, when I talk to a room full of women, but it's really important to be able to share the love and like, and be real, you know, and be, and be real in the sense, like, I need this, like, can you help me get there? And I think that's one thing that if you've been underestimated at work, you've been told for so long that you're, you know, that you don't matter or what you're doing isn't important enough, then it becomes hard to ask for help, right? I mean, all of this, all the lean in narrative is about, oh, you need to ask. But if you have always been shot down, or if you have been shot down nine nine out of 10 times, then of course you're defeating. Of course you're going to have bloody imposter syndrome, you know? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yo, man, we got, okay. So we do need to have, we do need to bring you back because like for a variety of reasons, but certainly to talk about like, how to ask for help and like just the managing the the emotional labor of asking for help over and right. over and over again because you're absolutely right because i mean and i look my dad um he's a salesman like that's really who he is and so i get it from him like i'll shoot like i'll shoot over and over and over again but it doesn't change the fact that at the end i'm exhausted and it's defeating to hear no all over the time all over yeah. or, or to be undermined or just or or for you to be told no and then someone else to come along and ask for help and ask for and get and and basically they're doing a watered down version of what you wanted help to do you know what i mean like that is ugh. anyway goodness y'all look ruchika got us over here about to have a whole new podcast in the wrap-up <laughs> section of the show but that's okay y'all look you've been listening to living corporate make sure you check us out check out the show notes till next time y'all peace and i'll be back <laughs> and she'll be back <laughs> Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.